With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello guys and welcome to episode number 18 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. As ever, I'm your host Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the title. And as always, I thank you guys for joining me. I hope you're all good. I'm good myself. As you hear this, my dry January is nearly over now. Or it is actually over depending on when you listen. Thank God, I could murder a pint right about now. But I am pleased to have stuck with it. How are you all getting on with any New Year resolutions you made? As I said the other week, never be too hard on yourselves guys. We're here for a good time, not a long time, that's my mantra. So you join me after yet another busy week. Thanks for all of the new follows, shares and reviews for the show by the way. And the True Crime Enthusiast Patreon page has gone up and is live now. With some patrons very kindly already opted in to support me. That's wonderful of you and I'm so grateful. So special thanks and shouts out must go to supporters Sarah Edwards, Rebecca Manners, Anna Avery, Kim Nixon, the wonderfully named Sassy Energizer and the host of the fabulous Asian Madness podcast herself, Jessica Yuan. Thank you so much for your support guys. It means the world and the premier bonus episode available for Patreon supporters will be uploaded on the 1st of February. If anyone else would be interested in supporting the show, I can be found on Patreon as the True Crime Enthusiast, and there's a whole load of offers of things available in there, including bonus content. It's all self-explanatory on the page, and links will be in the episode show notes for this week. I'd like to remind as well that I'm always willing and eager to hear suggestions for cases to cover on the show, and for any of you out there who fancy writing a guest piece for the show, I'm all ears. Next week is going to be the first episode created solely by content written up and provided by listeners to the show, and I'm very excited to be bringing that to you. If you have a case in mind that you think would be a great fit for the podcast, then please get in touch. I'd be super thrilled to hear from you. Apart from dry January, I've had a dry week for new podcasts as well this week, but I have made sure that I've caught up with some new episodes of some of my regular weekly listens. There's always an influx of new episodes come a Tuesday, so it takes a while to get through each. 
but this week from what I've managed to catch, I can especially recommend the latest episodes from the Scandinavian true crime team, True Crime Finland with their coverage of the infamous Lake Bodum murders, and True Crime Sweden with a tale concerning the second largest ever investigation in Swedish history. Both of these are fascinating and complex tales, and they're covered excellently by each pod. And of course, the fabulous They Walk Among Us, as this week covered a really shocking case, the Pottery Cottage Massacre. It's a case it's very unfamiliar, and Ben and Rosanna have done an absolutely wonderful job of bringing it to air. I do highly recommend it because it's a fascinating and very tragic tale. For this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've decided to cover a case from my home area, North Wales. It's a case that goes back to 2001 and to a small village on the island of Anglesey, which is just off the coast of northwest Wales, where a crime happened that was so savage and horrific that it shocked and terrified the inhabitants of a small community. I'm not actually sure just how well known this case is. I remember it vividly, and the details concerning the case make it one that will stand out. And if you haven't heard of it before the episode, then I'm quite confident it's a case you'll never forget. Again, I don't think it's one that's been covered by other podcasts of the true crime genre. It may very well have been, but I haven't found it if so. As usual, this episode contains content and descriptions of crime that some listeners may find disturbing. I've not tried to sensationalise any of the aspects of the crime that you'll hear within. It's a case of simply what we do. It's all or nothing, isn't it? But please be extra advised this week. This is a disturbing case, guys. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of the Anglesey Vampire. The largest island in Wales, and the seventh largest in the British Isles, is the island of Anglesey just off the northwest coast of Wales. It's a predominantly Welsh-speaking island known as an attractive community that's very popular with tourists due to its many attractions. For example, the magnificent Beaumaris Castle and King Arthur's Seat. It's very populous and famed for its beaches, its wildlife and the various water sports and pastimes that go on around the area. It's a lovely and very active place and if you ever get the chance, I do recommend that you go and visit. That's my North Wales tourism board bit done for the week there. The island is separated from the North Wales mainland by a stretch of water known as the Menai Straits, and two bridges span this connecting the island and the mainland. One is the Menai Bridge, and the other is the 461 metre long Britannia Bridge. On the Anglesey side of the Britannia Bridge as you drive across, you land right in a large village that has the longest place name in Europe and the second longest in the world. I'm sure that you've heard of this. This is, bear with me, Llanviaputh Gwingith Gogerith Windrobl Llantasilio Gogogoch. I won't even try to repeat that. You won't believe how many times I had to say that to record it. Translated from Welsh, this means St Mary's Church in a hollow of white hazel near the rapid whirlpool of the church of St Cecilia with a red cave. Thankfully, it's more commonly known as Llanvia PG. I'm glad about that because I can pronounce that okay. Llanvia PG has a population of not much more than 3,000 people, 
and is a respectable area and a proper community with a large number of elderly residents. The population of the village hasn't increased very much in size since the 2001 census was taken, and it's 2001 that this week's story takes place. Mabel Lation lived alone in a large bungalow called Geratua on the road of Lonpant in Llanvaer PG. She had spent her entire life living in Anglesey, and when she had married not long after the Second World War had ended, she'd moved into the bungalow with her husband. The Lations were a respectable and very private couple, with Mabel's husband running a very successful veterinary practice on the island, and by all accounts they were happy, although they never started a family of their own. They continued living in the house past their retirement, until Mabel's husband passed away in 1987, when Mabel was 76 years old. Seeing no reason to move from the house that she knew and loved, Mabel remained there alone. Because she was elderly and quite physically frail, and with failing eyesight and hearing, Mabel didn't manage to get about easily, and as a result rarely left the house. So combined with her naturally private nature, many people knew little about her. One neighbour was quoted as saying, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know her name was Mabel. That's how private a lady she was. Mabel did have an active and sprightly mind though, and although a solitary person, she did have some relatives. A cousin of hers lived in Birkenhead in England, and Mabel spoke to her weekly via telephone, whilst another cousin of Mabel's used to drop in regularly to do chores or shopping for her and take her for a regular hair appointment, something Mabel was very fond of having done. So she did see some people, and wasn't totally isolated or alone. The local Meals on Wheels service and home help also used to come around to bring Mabel her lunch or tea, and Sunday November the 25th, 2001 was no exception. It was at lunchtime that day that a carer from the Meals on Wheels service knocked at the front door of Geratur, but got no answer. Knowing that Mabel was very hard of hearing, the driver knocked again louder, and when there had still been no answer, went around to the rear of the property to knock on the back door, thinking Mabel may more likely hear this. As the driver went around to the rear of the property, before the back door to the kitchen were a set of French windows, and the driver was concerned to see that a large pane of glass had been smashed out of one of these, with broken glass covering the outside yard. A look through the window was to no avail as the curtains were drawn throughout the house and nothing could be seen and calling out for Mabel produced no response. Fearing that something had happened, the driver decided to contact police. The call was received, and a police patrol was dispatched to the scene. An officer tried to for a response at the front door, but again with no success. Going around the rear, the officer noted the broken French window doors, and entered the property through them. The windows opened into a separate dining room at the back of the bungalow, which opened into the hallway that led off to the bedrooms, bathroom, kitchen and front sitting room. The police officer moved through the bungalow, noting that each room was relatively tidy and that there were no signs of a disturbance or ransacking. In fact, apart from the broken glass from the French window, the rest of the house was tidy. The final room that the officer came to was the living room. Immediately as the officer took in the appearance of the room, it was very apparent that something macabre had occurred here. The curtains were tightly drawn shut and the lamp was still on, even though it was daytime, casting a reddish glow over the scene. 
Sat in an armchair in the living room and covered head to toe with a blanket was the body of a person, presumably that of Mabel Lation, but this could not be determined from first glance as the blanket covered the features. Upon removing the blanket enough to check, it was found that this indeed was the body of Mabel Lation and that there were no signs of life, and furthermore, there was an obvious and vicious stab wound to her throat clearly visible. The chair, carpet and blanket were all heavily saturated with blood and knowing that this was a serious and suspicious incident, the police officer radioed for assistance and exited the property to await detectives and scene of crime specialists attending. When detectives and forensic investigators arrived, they donned full protective anti-contamination clothing, gloves and overboots to avoid contaminating the scene and again entered the property through the French windows. The scene was documented with video footage and entering the front room, investigators could fully take in the horror of what had happened there. Mabel sat in her usual favoured armchair, covered head to toe with a blood-stained blanket. The armchair was saturated with blood and the carpet around the armchair was also blood-stained. Blood-stains were also noted in several different places around the room including the wall and windowsill of the front room window. To the left-hand side of the armchair on the floor, placed on a silver platter, was a small milk pan with a mark around the interior where it had at one time contained a liquid or substance of some kind. On top of the pan was a small package wrapped in newspaper that was also saturated with blood. And on the floor in front of the body were a pair of pokers from the fireside companion set that had been placed on the floor to make the form of an inverted cross. A candlestick was also placed next to these, as though this was some form of crude makeshift altar or shrine, and a red candle had also been placed nearby. So if that wasn't horrific and macabre enough, what else was to be found at the scene was enough to make one shaken police officer say later to reporters, The devil has been to Anglesey. Now I'll take time to repeat what I said at the beginning of the episode, guys. The following contains descriptions of a crime that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting. Examining Mabel's body at the scene, the blanket was removed and several vicious stab wounds were clearly apparent. The later post-mortem was to determine that she'd been stabbed up to 22 times. The back of her legs had also been severely slashed and were deeply cut. But there was something else, something which caused experienced detectives to be shocked and chilled to the bone, and for more than one on the inquiry to describe it as the strangest and most horrific thing that each of them had seen at a crime scene in their respective years of service within the police force. A massive wound was found on Mabel's chest. Her chest cavity had been crudely hacked open, and her heart was no longer there. It had been hacked out crudely and was found in the package wrapped in the newspaper that was in the milk pan on the floor. An examination of the heart later determined that the end had been sliced off and it had been squeezed in an attempt to drain the blood out of it. Looking at the pan that the package had been placed in, it was determined that the mark around the inside of the pan likely was blood staining, and what was also apparent was a lip mark on the edge of the pan. It appeared that Mabel's killer had removed her heart, drained it of blood, and drank it. 
I'll just take a moment for you guys to process that. I mean, isn't that one of the most chilling and disturbing things you've ever heard? Imagine finding that scene, and imagine the terror that that poor lady must have gone through. Why on earth would someone murder a defenceless old lady in her own home in such a horrific way? Mercifully, for want of a better word, the post-mortem determined that Mabel had died relatively quickly, as one of the initial stab wounds had pierced the heart and death had occurred very shortly after this. The weapon used was established to be a tough, thin-bladed, sharp knife with a single cutting edge that was a minimum of six inches long. It was the opinion of the pathologist that Mabel had been attacked from behind as she sat in her armchair whilst watching television, and from the state of the body, death was estimated to have occurred sometime between late Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening, the 24th of November. There was no evidence of any sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault, and Mabel had not been beaten in any way, she had just been stabbed as she sat, and had died very quickly. Detective Chief Superintendent John Clayton was placed in overall charge of the investigation, and immediately his concerns were how to get the maximum appeal out to get information from the public, without releasing all of the details as to what had happened. This is an understandable dilemma. Of course, any investigation is reliant on as much information as can be gleaned from the public as possible, but care must be taken not to instill a sense of panic or fear. An unsolved murder does create a sense of unease in any community, especially a close-knit one such as Land via PG, so releasing the information that a killer was on the loose would create enough unease anyway. So imagine the fear that knowing there was a killer who had removed an old lady's heart for the sole reason that they wanted to drink her blood. It wasn't something police wanted to do. Police quickly determined that this indeed seemed to be the reason for Mabel being killed, and without trying to sound too dramatic, it seemed that there was indeed a killer who believed himself to be a vampire. There was no sign of ransacking or disturbance to any other rooms in the bungalow, and a substantial sum of money was found in a bureau in the front room where Mabel was found. Nothing was found to have been taken from the bungalow, and police were forced to conclude that Mabel had been killed solely for her blood. There were no unidentified fingerprints found at the bungalow, although crime scene investigators did manage to find several items of forensic evidence that had been left by Mabel's killer. There were some unidentified shoe prints at the scene, found on a piece of slate lying outside the French windows, also on the broken glass from the windows, and also inside the bungalow on a whole carpet. Impressions of these were taken, and a search got underway to find a matching type of shoe. A number of fibres were also found on the broken window pane of the French windows, and these were determined later to be a match for denim jeans. But most crucially, among the several bloodstains that were throughout the front room that belonged to Mabel, a mixed DNA sample was found on one of the samples on the windowsill in the front room. Alongside Mabel's profile, there was also a partial DNA profile that was determined to have come from a male. A list of the local electoral register was obtained, and the hunt for Mabel's killer began. From the start, police believed that her killer was someone from the area of, or someone with good local knowledge. 
Mabel's bungalow was not on any thoroughfare and was set quite far back off the road, and it was likely a killer that either knew her or knew of her. It was impossible to tell who lived in the property from passing. There was nothing to show. It could equally have been an MMA fighter as a 90-year-old widow. It was likely to be someone from the local area, but police also had to bear in mind that the Britannia Bridge that joined Anglesey to the North Wales mainland was only 300 metres away from the bungalow. The killer may not even live on the island. It could be somebody who lived on the mainland, or someone who was just visiting or had a tenuous connection to the island, perhaps a relative who lived there, or someone who worked on the island. This was a real possibility, and as a result, such a person would be outside the catchment pool that police were focusing upon. With no obvious suspect in mind, police could rule no one out, and they knew that they had a massive pool of people to look at and eliminate, even in just clan via PG alone. It was decided to start there and work outwards, and the house-to-house inquiry started, beginning with the inhabitants of Llanvia PG. The entire male population of the village was spoken to, and it was decided that a mass DNA screening would be undertaken by teams of investigators, with a sample taken from every male between 18 and 60 years of age. So testing of the eligible males in the entire village of Llanvia PG got underway and forensic scientists began the arduous task of comparing all of the DNA samples that they received against the minute trace of male DNA that had been obtained from the windowsill in Mabel's living room. Police were also looking at the shoe prints that they had taken from various parts of the murder scene in an attempt to narrow down the type and size of shoe that the killer had worn. Once identified, This was a line of inquiry that would obviously assist in further narrowing down the suspect pool. From the sole marks found on the glass, the slate and the carpet, a careful examination revealed the prints to have come from a sports trainer, and the width of the shoe estimated it to be larger than a men's size 6. Further examination and painstaking elimination of different types of trainers eventually found the print to be a perfect match for a man's Levi trainer. Now this wasn't the type of trainer I either was familiar with or remembered. I asked my mate in work and he was the same. Jeans, yes. Trainers, no. But apparently, yes, Levi trainers there were. And these were what Mabel's killer had worn. What was of more good news to police was that the sole print of the shoe showed very little wear. This meant that there was a good chance they'd been purchased fairly recently. And that meant that if they had been bought locally then there may be a paper trail of credit card receipts that would lead detectives to the killer. A check of places in the locality to see where sold this type of trainer was made, and it was soon found that the only place that sold these locally was an outlet in Bangor, which is a city in North Wales just the other side of the Menai Strait from Anglesey. A further check revealed that just 53 pairs of these trainers had been sold in the shop. Now this looked like a real lead because if police could trace the owners through the credit card receipts, somewhere in that list could be the identity of Mabel's killer. However, although it was found that 48 pairs of these had been purchased by credit card, and so billing and card details were available, the remaining 5 pairs had been paid for in cash, and it was possible that the killer was amongst these 5, if he had even bought the shoes in Bangor of course. Meanwhile, 
because a crime like this had never been seen before in North Wales police history, and quite really is rare anyway, this is the kind of thing you see in horror films and it makes your blood run cold, doesn't it? Police had decided to consult a psychological profiler to give them a profile of the killer that they were hunting. The cracker, when he was called in, profiled that the circumstance of the killing and the evidence left behind pointed to a loner who lived alone or possibly with a single parent, a person who didn't seem to fit in and didn't come from an ordinary conventional background. They also claimed that serious consideration should be given to the killer being someone as suffering a severe mental illness, or at the very least, someone with potentially early signs of schizophrenia. Now I know that arms and legs can't be added onto these things, and a profile will be what it is based on the facts available, but this really did seem to be stating the obvious there, as if you wouldn't consider that. If you're a popular outgoing Johnny 20 friends, then you don't usually murder people in the most horrific of ways imaginable, unless you're Christian Bale in American Psycho. And who cuts an old lady's heart out and drinks her blood if they are of sound mind? Just 10 days after Mabel's horrific murder, there was another horrific and tragic incident that led police to believe that there may be a possibility that the two incidents were connected and that Mabel's killer may have taken his own life. There was a suicide on the Britannia Bridge, just 300 metres from Mabel's home, on the 4th of December. A 37-year-old man, David Glyn Griffiths, from the village of Gerwen, just 4 miles west of Llanvia PG, jumped over the side of the bridge after first immolating himself. He doused himself in petrol, set himself alight, and then thrown himself off the bridge, falling 40 metres. His charred and badly injured body was found by a member of the public near the water's edge of the Menai Straits on December the 4th. Whilst it's always sad when a person is so tortured for whatever reason that they sink to a level where they feel the only release is to take their own life, it's also often the case that a murderer's actions will prove to be too much for them to live with and they can't live with the guilt of what they've done. Because of the proximity of the suicide to Mabel's home, and coming just a few short days after the murder, police focus suddenly turned to David Griffiths as a person of interest in the investigation. Local press and media also raised the suggestion that the two incidents may be connected, which was certainly a fair opinion. His movements on the weekend of Mabel's murder were examined, and police interest intensified in him as a possible suspect when it was revealed that he had left several suicide notes at his family home addressed to his parents, claiming that he was unable to live with his darkness anymore. He had also left a poem in Welsh, and this was found to be a passage from the Bible. It was a passage that contained several references to the human heart. So although this was purely circumstantial evidence, it could not be ignored. Search of David Griffiths' home was carried out by police, but revealed no evidence that could link him to the murder. Forensic experts even examined the shoes that he'd been wearing when he was found to see if they were a match for the Levi trainer. Although the shoes were badly charred from the immolation, it was eventually determined that they were not a match. Tests were also carried out on several items of his clothing to see if there was a match between them and the denim fibres that had been found on the broken pane of glass, but all this proved negative. 
Furthermore, he was alibied for the time that Mabel was believed to have been murdered, the late afternoon to evening of November the 24th. This was enough, and David Griffiths was eventually completely ruled out as a suspect in Mabel's murder. Any reasons for his suicide have never been revealed, and it was found to be nothing more than a tragic coincidence that he had taken his own life just yards away from where Mabel had met her death in her own home. By the time two weeks had passed since Mabel's murder, the killer was still on the loose. The full horrific details of what the killer had done to Mabel had not been released to the public. The police had just simply referred to her being repeatedly stabbed in her own home. There was a real sense of fear hanging over the community, and people didn't venture out after dark, only doing so in groups of two or three, and only if it was really necessary. Several night cashiers at local businesses who worked late or overnight were doubled up in number out of request, and it was reported that locksmiths in the area did a roaring trade, whilst hardware stores sold out of padlocks, bolts and chains. The police hunt continued, the trainer inquiry was still being worked through, the electoral register of local people was being worked through, and after house-to-house inquiries, these were constantly being eliminated from the inquiry. Officers even traced and left the country to speak to a number of migrant workers who'd been working in transient roles on Anglesey's seasonal fishing industry and who had left the island on the days after Mabel had been murdered and were now abroad working. And of course, the DNA profiles of all males between 18 and 60 were being taken as they were spoken to and fast-tracked processed to see if there was a match with a sample of mystery DNA found at the scene. But three weeks passed since the murder and a DNA match had still not been obtained. Had the police missed someone? They had worked diligently but seemed to be running out of options. All routes of inquiry had either been chased up and ruled out or were still very actively ongoing. A large-scale fingertip search of the surrounding area had been carried out in an attempt to find the murder weapon, but this had drawn a blank. All known local violent offenders had been examined as possible suspects and ruled out. All known people with mental health issues had been looked at, and these had been ruled out too. The inquiry to trace the purchaser of the Levi trainer was still ongoing, although a large majority of the 53 purchasers of the trainer had been spoken to and eliminated from the inquiry. Police felt it was time to reappeal. This was such a horrific case, and one that affected not just those investigating, but the community also so much that this was a killer that police were determined to catch. It's impossible to sum up the level of fear that existed in Anglesey in December 2001. Locals were terrified so much that they really wouldn't go out after dark, and police had very grave concerns that the killer had enjoyed committing the murder so much that he would be driven to kill again. Therefore, a meeting of senior investigating officers and North Wales police chiefs was convened, and two courses of action were decided upon. The first was the massive step of revealing for the first time the full extent of what the killer had done to Mabel. This was not a decision that was taken lightly by police. At the first stages of the inquiry, it was decided for numerous reasons not to include the gory detail about Mabel's heart being removed. Not only would it horrify and sicken the community more so, but and also as is common, Police always keep a few details concerning a crime from public knowledge 
so that they can ascertain the guilt or innocence of a suspect should they incriminate or rule themselves out during questioning, something only the killer would know. But as the urgency was now to bring this killer in before he struck again, it was decided to go public with the details. Although this would cause horror amongst the community, it would keep the case fresh in people's minds and therefore give maximum potential for a witness coming forward. The horror of knowing what the killer had done may also prick the conscience of someone who had vital information but may be covering for a friend or relative, out of a sense of misplaced loyalty perhaps, or out of guilt or fear. It would cause sensationalism in the press and the media spotlight would undoubtedly be on the village. But this may make the killer more uncomfortable and perhaps even make him give himself up. The second decision that was made at the meeting was for a full-on television reconstruction to be made on BBC TV's Crime Watch UK programme, when it was still on and doing good of course. Now I must just say here that I know I go on quite a lot about Crime Watch here on the podcast, but in its day it really was must-see TV and it did so much good, it brought so many criminals to justice and I do think that the BBC dropped a massive clangor there by asking it to keep churning out shite dramas, bigging up dance contests and funding pointless competitions for no-mark soon-to-be-in-panto singers. I know it's not just me who thinks this, and I've seen people agreeing and championing that on a couple of online reviews for the show to date also. I'm with you people, believe me. It can't be a coincidence that BBC can stand for Bring Back Crime Watch. There's got to be a good hashtag in that somewhere. So a Crime Watch reconstruction was filmed, at Mabel's bungalow no less, which must have been quite a pregnant and perhaps chilling thing to do. And it was filmed just less than four weeks after her murder and aired in the Crime Watch UK broadcast on the 20th of December 2001. It was also the first appeal ever on the show to be appealed not only in English, but also in the Welsh language. As Welsh is the predominantly spoken language on the island of Anglesey, they were going for maximum appeal and coverage. The Crime Watch appeal did highlight not only the brutality of the crime, but also the strange and macabre aspects at the scene, such as the placing of the pokers in the symbol of the cross on the rug in front of Mabel's corpse, and the placing of a candlestick, as though this, this was some sort of makeshift altar. The blood draining and ingestion was hinted at, and it was for the first time revealed to the general public that Mabel's killer had mutilated her and had removed her heart to do so. In the appeal, the psychological profile that a forensic psychologist had made of the killer was given. It pointed out someone who was a loner, who wouldn't fit into a normal conventional group, with possible mental issues or early signs of schizophrenia, and who would be familiar with the local area. Now as expected, the press sensationalised the story. We have said before about how offensive that press coverage can be a few weeks ago when we examined the case of Colin Island, but this was a sensational story. How do you play down a killer who's done something so horrific and chilling, something right out of a horror movie like what had happened to Mabel? How do you play that down? The sobriquets, the vampire killer or the Anglesey vampire were tossed around. And although, as you can imagine, the crime was now at the attention of not just the island, but the country, this did nothing to ease the fear in the community. In fact, it increased it. This is the beauty and the curse of the press, and sensationalism does, after all, sell newspapers. 
Following the Crime Watch appeal, between the studio phone lines and the incident room in Anglesey, police received nearly 200 calls from people who had seen the reconstruction and called to offer information, suspicions and general attempts to help. One of the telephone calls received amongst that amount was a call from a 16-year-old female German exchange student who lived in Clanvire PG, and it was the information that this girl had to offer that made police sit up and take notice. The girl had telephoned in because she believed that a person of interest that police should look at concerning Mabel's murder was a youth that she'd been involved in a strange incident with on September the 23rd, 2001, just a few months before Mabel's murder. She'd been staying in a house in Llanvia PG and had been introduced to a local youth by a Chinese youth who was a mutual friend of both. The three had gone to an upstairs bedroom in the house to smoke cannabis and whilst talking and smoking, the subject of vampires arose. Now even back in 2001, vampires were popular amongst teens. TV shows such as Angel and Buffy the Vampire Slayer were high-rated shows that were on at the time, and books by authors such as Anne Rice popularised the romantic notion of a tortured vampire. Yet it doesn't just come from whether you're Team Jacob or Team Edward, or the TV show True Blood nowadays, you know. And for the record... Although vampires are still popular in culture now, for me, the scariest vampire ever has to be the master from Stephen King's Salem's Lot. If you don't know that one, have a Google and see. The kitchen or the jail cell scene, God, scary stuff. So while the trio were talking about vampires, the youth that the girl had met for the first time that evening, 17-year-old Matthew Hardman, talked enthusiastically about them and the vampire culture, and he had claimed that Llanvia PG was actually the perfect location for vampires to exist and thrive in, because the majority of its residents were elderly. It may be easier to make it appear that any victims had died of natural causes. Hardman had then accused the girl of being a vampire herself, and had pushed his neck against her mouth and begged her to bite him, to turn him. Thinking that Hardman was just messing about or twatted out of his mind on cannabis, the girl refused, but then Hardman got rough with her and pinned her to the bed, again demanding over and over, bite me, turn me. The frightened girl began to scream, and her landlady and the Chinese student, who shared the accommodation with the German girl, came to her aid and dragged Hardman off her, slapping him several times, to which he simply replied, but she's a vampire. Hardman continued to create a disturbance at the house. He kept asking the girl to bite him, and even went as far as to punch himself in the face, causing a nosebleed. He hoped that this would prove irresistible to the girl who he believed was a vampire, and he smeared his own blood all over his arm and the palm of his hand, inviting her to smell it. Police were called as a result, and attended the property to arrest Hardman for breach of the peace, and he was taken into custody by Sergeant Peter Nicholson of North Wales Police. Hardman gave no coherent response when he was arrested, instead even asking Sergeant Nicholson to bite him. No charges for this episode were brought against Hardman as a result of this, and he was released under caution the following day. So that's strange behaviour indeed, the result of being under the influence of cannabis? Or was it possible that Matthew Hardman could be a person of interest in the investigation into Mabel's murder?
When his name was checked following the call received from the German exchange student, it transpired that Matthew Hardman lived with his mother and her partner in a house on the road of Llandrill that was just 200 yards from Mabel's bungalow, and Hardman had been spoken to in the early stages of the investigation as he lived in close proximity to the murder scene, although as he was just 17 he had not been included in the DNA net. Police had called at his home and questioned him as part of the initial routine inquiries, and he had accounted for his movements on the evening of the murder, although he'd been the only person home at the time when police had called. Although he was aware that a serious crime had happened, he had denied knowing Mabelation, and because there was no reason to question him further, police had moved on to speak to the next person. It was time to speak to Matthew Hardman again. Detectives went to speak to him again on the 5th of January 2002, on the pretense of it being a follow-up inquiry to his earlier interview, but with the true motive of assessing his potential as a suspect. Hardman repeated his story from his earlier interview, he'd been at home the evening in question and he didn't know Mabel Lation at all. However, this time Hardman's mother was at home and was present during his questioning, and when Matthew claimed that he didn't know Mabel, his mother stopped him and corrected him and pointed out that yes indeed he did know Mabel Lation. He delivered free newspapers to her house two or three times a week for a number of years beginning in December 1996 and he'd continued to do so up until October 2001, just a month before Mabel had been murdered. Had Hardman generally not realised that this was Mabel's house? Or was he lying? By a twist of fate, the two detectives who were speaking to him that day were the two detectives who had discovered that the shoe that matched the footprints at the murder scene belonged to a Levi trainer and had followed up this line of inquiry to the end. While they were speaking to Hardman, one of the detectives spotted that Matthew happened to be wearing a pair of Levi trainers that looked relatively new. Without wanting to alert Hardman, the detective told him that they would be back to speak to him further if necessary and then almost as an afterthought, told him they needed to take all of his trainers for comparison and elimination purposes. After these were obtained, the detectives then left, both privately convinced now that Hardman should be looked at as a serious suspect. He lived in the area very close by, he knew the victim, and had lied about this, but perhaps more coincidental, he was one of the 53 people who had trainers of the type that were a match for the shoe prints found at the murder scene. He had also been arrested not long before for creating a disturbance in which he'd shown an obsession with vampires. So whilst the comparison was made between the shoe prints from the scene and Hardman's own Levi trainer, Hardman was placed under police covert surveillance. It was noted that when he wasn't attending Menai Colleg in nearby Bangor, where he was a student studying art and design. Hardman would just hang around Clan via PG. In fact, he seemed to be the only person who was comfortable being out and about in the area with a killer on the loose. The community was still in fear, and no one else would venture out after dark. Yet Hardman seemed to have no fear. Two days after detectives had visited him at home for the second time, word came back from the forensic comparison of Hardman's shoes they were found to be a perfect match for the prints found at the crime scene. As a result, Matthew Hardman was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Mabel Lation at his home early the next morning, the 8th of January 2002. 
He didn't protest and he was calm and collected, only turning round to his shocked mother and saying, Don't worry, it's alright mum, I didn't do anything. Whilst he was taken to Carnarvon custody suite, a thorough search of his family home and bedroom was made, his clothes were taken away for examination and his computer was seized for examination. The search yielded several compelling items of evidence. In Hardman's bedroom were copies of books such as Bram Stoker's Dracula. There was also a library book entitled The Devil, an autobiography, and also two copies of a magazine called Bizarre, a British soft porn and alternate lifestyle magazine. One of these copies featured an article on how to perform a black mass ritual. An examination of Hardman's computer also revealed that he had accessed several online sites concerning vampires and the occult, such as the Vampire Rights Movement and the Vampire Donor Alliance. Whilst this in itself was just circumstantial evidence, and most likely could have been found in the bedroom of any teen, a look in Hardman's wardrobe was to find evidence that probably wasn't as commonplace. Inside his wardrobe, Clothing that was seized included a pair of blue denim jeans, inside which a meat cleaver was found to be hidden. A blue cagoule was also found that had latex gloves inside the front pouch, and a black jacket that was found to have a 6-inch sturdy black-handled kitchen filleting knife inside. Quite telling, eh? The items that were found were reported to the interview team and were taken for forensic examination. These items were to form the basis of a series of structured interviews that Hardman underwent over a period of two full days, throughout which he was calm, collected and emotionless. Hardman maintained that he hadn't known Mabel personally, but had accepted that he used to deliver a free newspaper to her property and that he knew of her. His obvious interest in vampirism was downplayed and claimed that it was just that, a passing interest. And as for the knife and meat cleaver found hidden in his bedroom, well Hardman's excuse for these was that he'd started carrying a weapon round with him for protection. I mean, there was a killer on the loose after all, he claimed, and they were hidden to save any arguments about them with his mother. He had no explanation for the purpose of the latex gloves, nor could he explain why trainers in his possession were a match for shoe prints from the crime scene, but he still maintained his composure. The only time he was to lose any form of composure was when it was presented to him that police had DNA evidence from the killer from the scene. Hardman became very agitated and uncomfortable, asking what type of DNA evidence this was and where it had been found. The reason for the agitation? When Hardman was arrested, a sample of his DNA was taken from a cheek swab and had been fast-tracked for a comparison with a sample taken from the scene. It was nearing the end of Hardman's time in custody, with the inquiry team having already applied once successfully for an extension. He'd been in custody for two days and interviewed constantly throughout this, but the comparison results from the DNA profile had not yet come back from the forensic lab. At 6pm on Thursday the 7th of January 2002, two hours before Hardman's period in custody was due to expire, the DNA results come back. In the opinion of forensic scientists, the chances of the DNA profile found in the blood spot at the scene of the murder belonging to anyone other than Matthew Hardman was 1 in 1000. This was enough to bring charges and Matthew Hardman was charged with the murder of Mabel Lation six weeks after her death. 
It was then announced to gathered reporters outside Carnarvon Custody Suite at a press conference later that evening that a 17-year-old youth had been charged, although by a court order his name was being withheld. The following day, Hardman appeared before magistrates at Hollyhead Magistrates Court, handcuffed to two police officers and with a grey blanket concealing his identity. A small crowd had gathered outside the court, and there were angry scenes as they hurled abuse at him as he was being led inside. The hearing was typically short, and it was indicated that Hardman would be denying the charge of murder. He was then remanded in custody to await trial, and was taken to HMP Alt Course in Liverpool. Hardman came to trial at Mould Crown Court in mid-2002, in a 14-day trial that was spanned over the remainder of July and into August. The prosecution, Roger Thomas QC, argued that Hardman had an unhealthy obsession with vampires, claiming to the court, This was a murder carried out to satisfy the defendant's own sadistic and selfish ends. He may now deny it or seek to play it down, but we submit that in November 2001 he was fascinated by and believed in vampires. He believed they existed, believed they drank human blood, and believed most importantly that they could achieve immortality. These are not the views of a mentally unstable defendant. He is perfectly sane and there is no medical issue whatsoever for you to consider. Unbelievably, Matthew Hardman had been examined by several psychiatrists whilst he was on remand and was found not to be suffering from any form of mental illness whatsoever. Now I'll talk a bit more about this later on. So it was alleged that on the 24th of November 2001, whilst his mother and her partner were away for the weekend, Hardman had gone around to Mabel Lation's bungalow and finding the curtains tightly shut and hearing the television on really loud, had stalked around to the rear. Knowing that Mabel lived alone and was hard of hearing, Hardman threw a piece of slate from the garden through the lower pane of the French window doors and had crawled through the broken pane into the dining room. He had then crept towards the living room and had approached and attacked Mabel from behind as she sat in her armchair, stabbing her repeatedly with a filleting knife. She had died quickly as one of the first wounds had pierced her heart and Hardman had then attempted to drain blood from the body fetching a milk pan from the kitchen and making three deep cuts to the back of Mabel's legs. As this proved difficult due to her heart having stopped, Hardman had then mutilated Mabel and had removed her heart, hacked it out for want of a better word. The top of the heart had then been sliced off and blood had been drained into the pan, which the defendant then drank from. Hardman's defence barrister, Robin Spencer QC, refuted this. He claimed that there was no conclusive evidence that the blood in the saucepan had been drunk and questioned the likelihood of Hardman's culpability in the murder, saying, Is this 17-year-old dyslexic, somewhat naive young man who lacks self-assurance, the brutal, calculated, evil, cold-blooded killer the prosecution suggests he must be? He revealed that other suspects, such as a man who was preoccupied with the occult and had once nailed a bird to a crucifix, had not been properly eliminated from inquiries. He sounds a delightful soul as well, doesn't he? Hardman had also continued to insist that he could not recall his whereabouts or actions on the evening due to having a very poor concept of time and an impaired short-term memory, which could explain his apparent confusion. Hardman had claimed that he was with the Chinese student, his friend who had slapped him to try and halt his assault on the German girl that evening, 
he'd been with him at the time of the murder, but his friend denied this, claiming that this would have been impossible as he would have been at work at the time, and this was an inconsistent claim with Hardman's earlier claim of being at home on the evening of the murder. Detective Sergeant Yestin Davis, Hardman's interviewing officer, said that in spite of his story's inconsistencies, he was cool, unfazed and fairly laid back, even though we questioned him in a number of interviews over a three-day period. Not only that, but when he was charged with the murder, he showed absolutely no emotion. At no stage during the interview did he even cry. It's something that really brings it home to you how a 17-year-old boy could be so cool. During the trial, the jury heard testimony from the German exchange student who had telephoned police following the crime watch appeal concerning the earlier assault upon her in which Hardman had requested that she bite him. The Chinese student and the arresting officer that evening were also to testify concerning this, and Hardman himself was to claim he had no memory of the incident due to being under the influence of cannabis. The prosecution case relied heavily upon the forensic evidence that had been collected by the inquiry team, and piece by piece was introduced and presented to the jury. Experts testified as to the match for the shoe prints at the scene and the matching trainers found to belong to Hardman, and tests on the knife found in Hardman's jacket found it to be consistent in size and shape with the knife used to stab Mabel. When found, it had obviously been placed through a dishwash cycle beforehand, but examination of the handle revealed that there was a split in it. Inside this split had been swabbed, and two DNA profiles had been obtained from it. One belonged to Hardman, and the other was found to belong to Mabel Lation. But the damning evidence, it seemed, came from traces of Hardman's DNA being found at the crime scene in a blood spatter. In December 2001, a comparison had been made between his sample and the sample from the scene, and the chances of it being from anyone else were 1 in 1,000. In the six months that Hardman had been on remand, Further, more advanced comparison tests had been carried out on the samples, and scientists were now able to show, beyond doubt, that the chances of the sample at the scene belonging to anyone other than the defendant were 1 in 57 million. So the defence could not refute this, instead only being able to offer the possibility that cross-contamination may have occurred when the exhibits were en route to the testing facilities. Examination of the evidence logs proved beyond any doubt that this had not occurred. After two weeks of trial, the jury of seven women and five men deliberated for just four hours on the 2nd of August 2002 before returning a unanimous guilty verdict. Standing before Mr Justice Richards at Mould Crown Court, Hardman was issued a life sentence with a stipulation due to his age that he should serve a minimum of 12 years. He concluded, You hoped for immortality, but all you've achieved is the brutal ending of another person's life and the bringing of a life sentence upon yourself. The horrific nature of this murder was plain to all. It was a vicious and sustained attack on a vulnerable old lady in her own home, aggravated by the mutilation of her body. Why you should have acted in this way is difficult to comprehend, but I am drawn to the conclusion that vampirism had indeed become a near obsession with you, that you really did believe this myth may be true, that you did think that you would achieve immortality by the drinking of another person's blood, and you found this an irresistible attraction. Hardman's response to this, and his life sentence, was to burst into tears. 
He wept uncontrollably as he was taken away to prison to begin his sentence. Following Hardman's conviction, Detective Chief Superintendent John Clayton said, I was very pleased that we had the conviction. Matthew had obviously murdered this woman callously in cold blood. He deserved to be caught, he deserved to be convicted, and he deserved to be sent to prison. If you asked me if I thought he was capable of doing it again, I'd have to say yes, because I really do believe that Matthew Hardman would have killed again. As is so often the case with people who commit the most horrific of deeds, after the trial all people could comment on was how normal Hardman was. Teachers from his former school, David Hughes, described a well-behaved boy with a good sense of humour who struggled somewhat academically as a result of having dyslexia, but who was a talented artist. Friends of Hardman's described his art portfolio as full of morbid and depressing images, although one of them claimed, I don't think anyone thought much of it before this happened. Otherwise, he seemed to be a run-of-the-mill teenager. He smoked the odd bit of weed, drank a beer when he could get it, and he was into computer games, lads mags, just a normal kid. And it seemed that no one thought badly of Hardman. After the trial, a family friend of the Hardmans told the North Wales Daily Post, He wasn't a weirdo, he didn't wear black, and neither was he a village bad lad. He was just a normal kid who wore jeans and trainers. That's what makes it all the more shocking. Hardman had been born and raised on Anglesey, living most of his life in the town of Amluch on the northern side of the island. He was the youngest of three children, having two elder sisters who had moved away and lived in different parts of the country. Hardman's parents had divorced, and his father, who Hardman had lived with, had died suddenly of a massive asthma attack when Hardman was just 13 years old and after the trial it was suggested that this event may have played a key part in the savage murder Hardman was to commit just four years later. Undoubtedly, something like this does affect an adolescent, I agree, but as we've highlighted before in different cases featured on the podcast, this also happens to countless other people who don't go on to commit murder. That same year, Hardman had moved to Atlanvia PG to live with his mother Julia, who was a nurse, and her partner Alan Bennyworth, he was a former Ministry of Defence fireman. Matthew had never come to any police attention before the incident in September 2001, and he was enrolled in college studying art and design, of which he'd already completed his first term. He was even holding down a part-time job as a kitchen porter and waiter at the local Carrig Bran Hotel when he was arrested in January 2002. Hardman's always denied any involvement in the crime, He's consistently denied that he is responsible for the murder, and he's appealed the decision twice, with the appeals being rejected both times. He continues to remain in prison, and he's been told that for him, life will mean life. He's largely remained out of the news in the 15 years he spent behind bars to date, but a new book being written by a former psychiatric nurse, who had 80 plus sessions over a year working with Hardman whilst he was imprisoned at HMP Alt Course, it gives a glimpse into the chilling mind of Matthew Hardman. Chris Keneally was the first medical professional to examine him following his arrest, and he describes him in a chapter of his book entitled My Stretch in Alt Course Prison. The first thing that struck me was that Hardman was fresh-faced, well-spoken, and nothing like what the general public may consider a murderer to look like. I actually liked Matthew, as crazy as that may sound to most people. He was an engaging boy and I found we had a good rapport. 
But what I found strangest of all was when he first arrived in prison, he had a huge grin on his face. Now most 17-year-olds I know of would be scared to death when arriving at prison having been charged with murder. When he asked how he felt, he said, This is the most exciting thing ever to have happened to me. Having spent so much time with him, I'm convinced he was a paranoid schizophrenic. I'm also in no doubt that he was guilty. The evidence against him was overwhelming. And although he's always denied it, I don't think there's any way he didn't do it. He was a young man who didn't show any emotion. In fact, the only time he did was on the day he was sentenced. He asked me if I thought he was guilty, and I said I did. Everyone did. He curled up in a fetal position and started to cry. He has at no time offered any sympathy, any concern about Mabel Lation and what happened to her. He could be in denial, but the evidence was so overwhelming, I don't think there's any doubt. So what then is your take on the case of the Anglesey Vampire? I put a status on the Facebook discussion group the other day that this was one of, if not the most shocking case covered to date on the podcast. It's certainly up there with horrors such as the Osset Exorcist murder to me. How does a 17-year-old who has no history of offending or trouble with the police commit such a heinous crime and why? It truly is the stuff of nightmares and one of the things that I do struggle with getting my head around is the fact that Hardman has always been legally judged to be sane. I mean, surely not. There must be some sort of mental illness there. Putting his actions aside, his obsession and belief in vampires, that says paranoid schizophrenia to me. He's continued to deny any involvement in the murder, but how do you explain away the wealth of evidence against him? I wholeheartedly believe that Hardman was guilty, and I also believe that he would have killed again. Perhaps the reason that he does deny it is that he committed the crime in a psychotic, detached state, and he actually does have no memory of it. Therefore, he can't accept that he's committed it. Why he chose Mabel Lation to kill that night is something only Matthew Hardman knows and can answer, and he spent 15 and a half years saying nothing. What do you think, guys? Mental illness? Drug use? The wrong person? I'm eager for your thoughts on this case as always. The thread will be up tomorrow and please feel free to hear your views on this shocking tragic case. It's a chilling one isn't it? As I do with all the cases featured on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I recommend that you look up and dive down into the rabbit hole concerning the case of Matthew Hardman. There's quite a lot of information available and a Google search will bring up many pages and many images. Have a look at his mugshot and try to associate such horror with the person that you see. But more importantly, please also take time to remember Mabel Lation over all of that though. She was just an elderly widow, a person who lived through two world wars and was approaching the end of her natural life in the home that she'd lived in and loved for more than half a century, only to be brutally murdered in the most horrific, unimaginable of circumstances. She deserves remembrance for her, not Hardman. I'm sure this has been a shocking and difficult episode to listen to. I found it quite a one to write, to be honest, and an episode I hope that will incite debate and discussion. Please get in touch if you'd like to discuss through the usual social media channels, or perhaps if this is the first episode that you've tuned into and it spurred you on to listen to more of the show, then please consider leaving a show review on iTunes or social media. I must also remind you guys that the show now has a Patreon page for any supporters who wish to pay a visit. 
There's some extra stuff available should you want it, and links to all are in the show notes as usual. However grisly and tragic a story this has been, I'm glad to have brought it to you today, and I hope it's kept your interest. I shall be back next week, as I said, with some tales from you guys. Yes, it's Listener Contribution Week. I've got a trilogy of cases from three very talented writers and researchers that are coming to you next week. I'm excited about them, and I've read the tales. I'm sure that you'll be also. I thank you all for joining me, as always, and I wish you all a happy, safe week. I'll catch you next True Crime Tuesday. From Paul, the true crime enthusiast, take care, guys, speak soon, and goodbye for now.